3. Uh, All of our scripture readings uh, this afternoon are in connection with uh, the theme of the sermon on the gifts of healings uh, that we see attested to in the New Testament. So we'll start in Acts 3. Acts 3, the verses 1 through 10. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Let's turn now to the next chapter, to Acts chapter 4. Beginning in, uh, I'm not sure why I said verse 10 since it's in the middle of the sentence. Let's start in verse 8 as they're uh, discussing this man's healing. Acts 4 beginning in verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God is raised, excuse me, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, it's the verse we uh, alluded to earlier this morning, they perceived that they were uneducated common men, that they, they, and they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. 
And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So far from Acts 4. Let's also turn to the next chapter, Acts 5. Reading yet another account, Acts 5, 1 through 16. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds, and brought only a part of it, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit, and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young, man rose, the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Uh, Let's finally turn to one last text from Acts, Acts chapter 28. We'll read the verses 1 through 10. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bunch of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come on him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. And in the neighborhood of that place were were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. 
And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. So far from Acts, now we'll turn just briefly to the epistles, to 1 Corinthians 12, just a few verses there. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 27 through 31. We've seen this uh, verse a few times as we've looked at uh, the spiritual gifts, and it's good to keep this in mind as we look at this gift as well. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 27, Now you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles... Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Uh, Finally, one last text, James 5. James 5, verses 13 through 18. James 5, verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So far the reading of God's word. As we reflect on all that we've read, let's sing together from Psalm 30, stanzas 1 through 3. We typically go to the Heidelberg Catechism as the confession of this church and the summary of Christian doctrine by which we work our way through the teachings of the Christian faith. We've been camping out in Lord's Day 20 on the gift, or excuse me, on the, uh, the person and work of the Holy Spirit and focusing particularly on the gifts of the Spirit uh, and especially those that we find uh, in the book of Acts in the, uh, that are associated with the age of Pentecost. Uh, and our topic then this afternoon is the third of these three gifts, that is the gift of healing. Uh, we read several examples uh, a moment ago. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, as I mentioned, this is the last uh, of our series in on the spiritual gifts, uh, and we're focusing particularly on the gift of healings. 
Now, like the other gifts we've seen, the gift of tongues, the gifts of prophecies, uh, the gifts of healing is, is one of those features of, of the age of Pentecost, the outpouring of the Spirit. So we see uh, the disciples prophesying, we see them speaking in tongues, and we see throughout the book of Acts them exercising gifts of healing. Uh, The gifts of healing is also one of those gifts that is often associated today with Pentecostal churches. Uh, Those are not the only churches, uh, unlike things like the gifts of tongues. Uh, The gifts of healings are more widely practiced, uh, but that's probably where our minds would first go. We think of uh, these, these Pentecostal churches, perhaps these uh, televangelists who exercise uh, supposed gifts of healings on, on TV. Uh, and for many of us, there's an almost immediate uh, reaction that says, oh, it's fraud. Uh, so we have to deal with that instinctive uh, reaction as well as we think about this gift. Because, of course, in the days of the, the Apostles, there would just as well have been many who would have said, oh, I'm sure it's fraud. Uh, in fact, we find the, the, uh, the Pharisees and the scribes uh, debating about this in one of these healings. Can we deny this thing as fraud? And, and they themselves admit we can't uh, because everyone knows who this person was. Uh, that being said, we should also recognize there's something different about the gift of healings uh, that does put it in a different category than uh, tongues and prophecies. Uh, for one thing, it's not specifically mentioned in Joel 2, the, the prophecy about Pentecost that Peter uh, preaches on. Uh, and perhaps even more importantly, there's no indication in Scripture that this gift would cease. Uh, In 1 Corinthians 13, uh, Paul uh, teaches that as the church reaches maturity, some of these other gifts will cease. And he specifically mentions uh, the gifts of tongues and prophecies. He doesn't suggest that the gifts of healing uh, would cease. Uh, Now, it was certainly a feature of the New Testament church. We read uh, several examples from the book of Acts. And all of these uh, examples, there are many others in Acts, but the ones I chose are are examples that were publicly witnessed uh, and were widely attested, Uh, especially the one in Acts 3 and 4, uh, this healing of a man who everyone knew uh, had been regularly for years going to the temple to to beg for alms. Uh, This is one that, that cannot have been denied. The gifts of healings is also mentioned in in the epistles. We read that in in 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, Paul specifically mentions this is one of the gifts of the Spirit. Uh, And and we should recognize in that list, some of these gifts are gifts that remain ongoing. Some of them have clearly ceased. Uh, The gift of apostleship is certainly gone. Uh, That is no longer needed in the church. Uh, But Paul also mentions gifts of wisdom. Uh, gifts of knowledge, gifts of faith, uh, which we would uh, acknowledge are, are th- things that the Spirit continues to, to give. And then finally we read from James. Uh, and here too, the gift of healing seems to be reinforced. Uh, James says, is anyone sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save 
the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Now, whether that's the the gift of healing per se that James is is speaking of, or uh, rather simply the call in general for Christians to pray for the sick, uh, it certainly does affirm that praying for the sick... uh, is, is commanded by God, is taught in the Christian faith, uh, and the, the expectation that God will also heal is present uh, in the Christian faith. Uh, there's no indication that that's something unique to that time. It, it is written as an instruction uh, by all appearances for the church uh, throughout history. Uh, In addition to that, another thing that makes this gift unique is that unlike the gift of tongues and unlike the gift of prophecies, uh, the Christian church in the subsequent centuries, uh, the Christian church which taught that that prophecies and tongues had ceased, never taught that healings had ceased. Uh, The church fathers generally agreed that tongues and prophecies had passed away, uh, and yet they spoke at length about many accounts of healings. Uh, So just for some examples, we find Origen, uh, one of the most influential of the church fathers. Uh, He he taught and wrote in Alexandria in Egypt uh, between the years 184 and 253. Uh, And we find him uh, arguing against the pagans in his debates with the pagans, uh, he points to the fact that Christians, unlike pagans, are still expelling evil spirits and performing cures. And then he cites several incidences that he himself had witnessed. Uh, or Athanasius. Uh, we, we might know Athanasius as the, the champion of orthodoxy, the, the big opponent of the Arians who taught that Jesus is not God. Uh, Athanasius... Uh, from around the 350s, uh, describes many accounts of healings and and miracles. Uh, He he also uses these accounts to defend the fact that God is present in the Christian church uh, in a way he's not present among the heretics. Uh, He even invites skeptics to come and witness uh, some of these healings for themselves. Uh, The church father Cyprian, Uh, wrote about Christians who were healed of diseases at the hour of their baptism. Uh, The church father Tertullian uh, mentioned many, uh, this is an interesting one, prominent pagans uh, who had not even become Christians, but who were cured by Christians and publicly acknowledged uh, that that they were cured uh, uh, by the prayers of Christians. Uh, One more, the church father Arrhenius Uh, wrote a long, long list of of the signs and wonders that he had witnessed. Uh, Many of them just like the ones that we find here in Acts. Uh, So we see that that throughout the subsequent centuries, the Christian church continued to attest uh, to, to the fact that God continues to heal. God continues to work miracles. Uh, now, from our perspective as a Reformed church, we would probably find it disturbing as we read some of these accounts that many of the healings that they referred to were, were associated with relics uh, or with prayers to, to saints. Uh, but, but my point here is simply to observe that, that the, the church fathers continued to attest to such healings. 
there were a few who, who had observed that in certain places where the faith of the church was, was weak, uh, that there were less healings, uh, but they still recognized the Spirit does or continue to do these things in the church, and especially on the mission fields, is a pattern you uh, see from many of the church fathers. Now, that belief continued right through the history of the Christian church. Uh, Again, we might question the use of, uh, and we should question, the use of relics and prayers to saints, uh, but the healings themselves are are well attested to. Uh, We certainly cannot deny, at the very least, that there are many uh, first-hand eyewitness accounts. What we make of those uh, might be different, but the fact that they are there cannot be disputed. Uh, There are also some who who attest to particular individuals with with healing ministries. Uh, A couple names are Martin of Tours uh, and and Benedict of Nursia in the 4th and 5th centuries uh, were were those who who, uh, have long records of, of healing ministries. Uh, And again, you see in the following centuries that this continues to happen, particularly on the mission fields. So what do we make of these these, uh, accounts of healings? Well, at the time of the the Reformation, uh, the Reformers had to wrestle with some of these questions, particularly because so many healings were associated with, with saints and with relics. Now, there were some Reformers who expressed skepticism, uh, about uh, the, whether these healings really had occurred. Uh, but for the most part, they did not reject the, the truthfulness of the accounts, but rather they, they asked, is it appropriate to go to relics and to go to saints for these healings? Uh, so uh, Martin Luther, for example, uh, while he did reject some of the more legendary accounts, uh, he argued that that gifts and miracles uh, could still be, or gifts of healing, excuse me, and miracles could still be performed uh, at the prayers of any Christian if God should so choose to act. Uh, but you ought not. It is more a question of ought not uh, go to saints and to relics for these healings. Uh, John Calvin, as well, was one of the harsher critics of, of these uh, practices of going to, to relics. Uh, and, and he also taught uh, that, that, that it is inappropriate, it is in fact idolatrous to seek healing from relics. But he did not deny that God continues to heal and to do uh, miracles. Uh, all that is surprising then, given the number of Christians today... Uh, particularly in the West and particularly Protestants, uh, who seem to think that God does not work miracles anymore. We have to ask the question, where does that skepticism come from? Now, perhaps one place to lay the the blame for that is is in some of the attacks against uh, Roman Catholicism. Sometimes Protestants have uh, so attacked Roman Catholicism that they've reached a point of denying uh, that, that God still works miracles uh, altogether. We see that uh, in, in, in many Protestant writings. 
But a more important place to look uh, in terms of why the church today, uh, so much of the church today, denies or fails to see uh, the, 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 the working of God in doing miracles uh, comes from the philosophers of the Enlightenment. Uh, those uh, philosophers that denied the sovereignty of God. Uh, one example is the philosopher David Hume. Uh, and he, he, is, he wrote a famous essay on why he believed miracles uh, could not uh, happen. And his two arguments were, uh, number one, they go against the law of nature. Duh. That's sort of the point. That's why we call them miracles. Uh, and, and the other point that he made, which we'll spend a moment on, is, is they deny or contradict human experience. He said, human experience shows us that miracles don't happen. We'll spend some uh, time on, on that point. Uh, on, on the first point, though, uh, does natural law, do the laws of the universe teach us that God cannot or does not do miracles? Uh, some have taught that, even in the Christian church, uh, and it's a very problematic teaching that says the laws of the universe are above the sovereignty of God. God cannot act outside of the laws of this universe. Uh, and it comes down to a worldview question, a question of what universe, what world do you live in? Uh, what kind of world is this? Is it one in which the laws of, of, of physics uh, determine all that can happen, or do we live in a world that is both spiritual and physical, over which God remains sovereign? Well, since the Enlightenment, the dominant answer to that has been the laws of physics decide what can and cannot happen in this universe, uh, and that nothing outside of those laws can ever happen. And so we have to ask the question, is that the world that Scripture presents us with? Well, the reality we discover very quickly is no. Uh, scripture presents us with a world that is spiritual as well as physical, and a world in which God, the Creator, who created outside, by definition, outside of the laws of physics, uh, remains sovereign over and above those very laws. It's a shocking thing that many, uh, many Christians defending uh, the, this, this, what's called a naturalistic assumption, have even gone so far as to claim that the miracles of Scripture did not occur because they contradict the laws of physics. Well, that's not the world the Scriptures present us with. Uh, the world that Scripture teaches us to see is a world in which God remains sovereign. That's in the Old Testament. That's in the New Testament. And that's the world that Christians have always understood themselves to be living in. Now, that, was, that was the world that was also presented and taught uh, by the first scientists, men like Isaac Newton, men like uh, Johannes Kepler, uh, who, who believed firmly in the laws of physics, and yet taught very strongly that God remains above and beyond them, uh, and does often act in this world outside of those laws. Uh, for, for, the first, for the fathers of science, that was not to be rejected out of hand the way that it is in much of science today. 
Now, what about this claim then that, that human experience teaches us that miracles don't happen as, as uh, David Hume uh, taught? Well, the only answer we can give to that is maybe his human experience taught that but certainly not uh, the experience of most of the world. It is indeed absurd to deny that human, or, or to claim that human experience denies the reality of miracles. Most human experience throughout history and throughout the world uh, acknowledges the existence of miracles. Uh, the, the problem tends to be that our prior assumption that they don't happen causes us, whenever we hear accounts, to say, well, these people aren't credible. And then you conclude, I don't hear of any credible people uh, claiming miracles. Well, that, you, you've ruled it out uh, right from the beginning. Uh, I have in, in my office, I'd be happy to loan it, a, a, a two-volume series, uh, this thick, uh, each volume, uh, by, by the uh, esteemed scholar uh, Craig Keener, uh, describing countless uh, accounts of miracles uh, through history as well as in the world uh, today. Now, you cannot claim that human experience denies uh, that God works sovereignly also through miracles. Uh, it, it, human experience strongly attests to that truth. Uh, so then, going to our, our focus then on the gift of, of healings in particular, uh, we want to recognize some scriptural principles. In the first place, that scripture does not teach that such things will cease. Now, you will not find that anywhere in Scripture, that Scripture teaches God will stop uh, working healings or working miracles. Uh, secondly, uh, the Christian church has not suggested ever that such things have ceased. Uh, that does not mean, of course, that God always heals uh, in response to prayers. This is one of the many objections that come to uh, the suggestion that God might heal. Oh, does God always heal? No, Scripture too does not teach that God always heals. Uh, the Apostle Paul, for example, speaks of a thorn in the flesh, a, a, a physical affliction uh, that he endured, that he, he says he prayed earnestly for God to remove, uh, and God did not take it away. God told him, my grace is sufficient for you. Uh, God does not always heal. God remains sovereign. Prayer is not a robot or, or a, a formula that works automatically. Uh, we might even think of Paul's failing eyesight as well. He struggled uh, his whole life with poor eyesight, which God never healed. God remains uh, sovereign. Uh, so, so the scriptures do not teach that God always heals in response to prayer, or as uh, some suggest that if God doesn't heal, there must have been a lack of faith in that prayer. Uh, that's not what Scripture teaches. Uh, we might also uh, wonder, when we read of the scale of the healings, the, the, the number of healings in, in the New Testament, as we saw in the book of Acts, uh, whether God continues to, to heal on that scale. Uh, and it's worth noting there are moments in history where God does work 
miraculously at a much greater scale than others. We think of the days of Elijah and Elisha when God worked abundant uh, miracles. Uh, And and so it certainly is no denial of the truth of Scripture to say uh, there was something special about those first days or first decades of the Christian church right after the, the, the outpouring of the Spirit. At the same time, uh, one cannot argue that, that, that uh, such experiences altogether ceased in the Christian church, or that such experiences don't happen anymore. Uh, indeed, in some places in the world, uh, such as China, uh, the eyewitness reports coming from those places suggest that uh, it, it almost is to the same degree as in the book of Acts. Now, there's one academic survey recently that uh, concluded as many as 90% of recent converts to Christianity in China came because they witnessed or experienced miraculous healings. Uh, The testimonies are, are certainly there. Now, that being said, another scriptural principle uh, that we want to recognize here is that behind healings, there might be the power of God or other powers at work. Uh, We think of Simon the Magician in the book of Acts, who also worked miracles, uh, including healings, uh, but who did so by the power of Satan. In addition to that, there is much fraud. Uh, We certainly see that as well, much fraud. Uh, scripture also speaks of superstition when we, when we deal with relics uh, in particular. Uh, we want to learn from the scriptural teachings about superstition. In what do you place your trust? Uh, th- those things exist as well. And, and finally, there is also spiritual abuse surrounding gifts of healings. Uh, promises of healings that never take place. Uh, or accusations that the ones who were not healed were not healed because of a lack of faith. There too, we want to learn from Scripture and say, no, God remains sovereign. Uh, It is not faith that heals. It is God that heals. Faith does nothing else but look to the God uh, who heals. Uh, John Calvin spoke at length about this this very point as well, uh, pointing out that behind that view that that if there's no healing, there must be a lack of faith. Uh, behind that, there's an often, uh, oftentimes a deeply distorted view of God uh, Himself, uh, where God is not seen as a good Father, who's sovereign and gives exactly what you need, uh, who gives health and sickness to His children for His own purposes, for their own good, uh, but rather that, according to that view, uh, God is, is, is simply a means to an end. Your healing, your health is your real God, and God is just being used to obtain what you're really after. Uh, so it is, it is right for us to be cautious when, when dealing with claims of healings and when thinking through the theology behind that. Uh, at the same time, we do not want to deny the sovereignty of God nor claim that Scripture teaches things it does not teach. Uh, Those who argue that the gifts of healings have ceased need to show that uh, from Scripture. Uh, So what is the way forward? I want to conclude with uh, several words of application. Uh, In the first place, we must never forget 
that we live in God's world, uh, which is as much a spiritual world as it is a physical world. And it's a world over which Christ is sovereign king. Uh, Christ reigns over every spiritual power and every physical reality. Christ, in other words, is able to heal when Christ so chooses to do. Now, whatever other forces then exist in this world, uh, you think of Paul speaking of, uh, of principalities and spiritual powers, none of those have any authority that is not given them for a time by Christ. Uh, none of them have any power or rule over the Christian. Uh, so, if we seek healing, we seek it from our good, heavenly, sovereign Father and from no one else. And we seek it in the name of Jesus Christ and in no other name. Uh, the Reformed argument, as I mentioned earlier, against witchcraft and against superstition is not that these things don't work. It's that that's not where you should go. Uh, maybe they will work, uh, but they work at the expense of your soul, if indeed they work. Uh, as I mentioned, the book of Acts contains many accounts of magicians and false prophets who worked wonders, and they are condemned uh, because uh, they're condemned not for their fraud, but they're condemned for their idolatry, for their participation uh, in, in these dark spiritual powers. Uh, moreover, Jesus himself said that uh, many false prophets would come. Uh, and he warns us not to be deceived by them. Uh, and, and when he speaks of that deceived, it's not deceived in the sense of believing that what they did happened. Uh, their, their, their wonders may be, uh, the wonders they work uh, may be real, uh, but that does not mean they come from God. And that is the point on which we are not to be deceived. Uh, indeed, the Lord Jesus even speaks of those who, who performed great signs and wonders in His name to whom He will ultimately say on the last day, Depart from Me, I never knew you, because they never themselves believed in Him. Uh, so, we live in a world where not only God works wonders, but also Satan and demons work wonders. And our calling is not to blindly follow the wonders and assume that God must be behind uh, every, every miracle that takes place. But our call is to maintain loyalty to our God and Father and to the gospel of Jesus as taught in God's word. Uh, the fact that a particular group may be working wonders does not automatically uh, function as a stamp of orthodoxy on that group. Uh, the fact that many well-documented uh, healings, and, and there are well-documented healings uh, associated with the cult of saints and the cult of relics, does not prove that such practices are, are proper. Uh, so indeed, uh, we, we live in God's world, and it is a spiritual as well as physical world over which Christ is king and for which Christ calls our loyalty to him and him alone. Uh, secondly, a second principle, uh, the text that we've read clearly teach us that it is right and proper to pray to God for healing, uh, and to believe that God can and does heal our sicknesses and diseases in response to His, uh, or excuse me, in response to our prayers. 
Uh, one way we might uh, apply this is to have uh, prayer groups during the week that are devoted to the theme of, of healing, uh, prayers for healing. There's nothing improper about such practices. At the same time, we must remember that all sickness, all disease is given to us from the hand of our good and sovereign Father. Some of it is given to us so that we might praise Him when He heals us from these things. But sometimes God also gives them as a means of showing His grace by which He teaches us daily to trust in Him, to rest in Him, and to place our hope in Christ. Uh, Much of the abuse and the fraud that surrounds the gifts of healings happens in places where the prosperity gospel uh, holds sway. And then God is simply seen as a means to an end. We need to reject that with all our heart. We exist for God's glory. He does not exist for our health. Uh, And we must not forget then that there are many people whom God does not heal. Uh, there, there were many in, in the days of, of the apostles, indeed in the days of Christ, uh, that he did not go to them and, and heal them. Uh, part of our prayers to God for healing must also be that submission and surrender uh, of our wills to the will of our Heavenly Father, knowing that all he does is good. Uh, We trust that Christ is our only comfort in life and death, not our health, uh, not the healing that we might earnestly hope for. And finally, one last point from Scripture. Jesus speaks of a generation that seeks after a sign, and he condemns that uh, in that generation. We must resist the very real temptation to be a generation that seeks after a sign, that is more in love with the, with the, the miracles and wonders that we get to witness on earth than with the God uh, who is behind them and the gospel uh, to which they point. Uh, The signs that God works are always intended to direct our eyes to the gospel. We see that in the book of Acts. Every healing is followed up by a proclamation of the gospel. Indeed, that's why they're done in the name of Jesus. Uh, A generation that seeks after a sign is a generation that has lost sight of the gospel. And, And that means it's a generation that's ripe for deceit, by, uh, by spiritual forces that can produce those signs but are opposed to the gospel of Jesus. It's noteworthy that uh, the bulk of the book of Acts, uh, even with all of its signs and wonders, uh, that's not primarily what the book of Acts is about, uh, but rather the faithful preaching of the gospel. Uh, To such an extent, indeed, that it includes uh, long accounts of doctrinal debates, church councils. Uh, The gifts of healing was not the apostles' primary focus. Uh, They were not primarily miracle workers, but preachers. Uh, They were focused on the gospel. And that is the greatest miracle that God performs. uh, The transforming power of the gospel through the Holy Spirit given to us. Uh, And and the greatest benefit that we receive uh, from the gospel is not earthly healing that might last uh, for a few years or a few decades. Uh, It's the healing from the disease of our sin that lasts for eternity. 
Uh, The greatest news that the gospel could ever give us is not a healing from cancer or some other chronic illness. The greatest news uh, is that we have been taken from the kingdom of darkness and brought by God's grace into the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. Let's keep our eyes on the thing that is most important. Uh, And as we've seen in, in both of the last two weeks as well, the central And the most important work of the Spirit is not the distribution of these special gifts. Uh, It is always, and Scripture is so clear, that it is always the communion by which He binds us to Christ and Christ to us and the faith, hope, and love that the Spirit works in our hearts. These are the higher gifts that Paul calls us to earnestly seek after. So let us do that by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Uh, In response to God's word, we're going to sing from Psalm 103. Uh, I had accidentally uh, put hymn 64.